and welcome to the weekly review. It's Friday, December 4th, 2015. Where does the time go? Been doing the show for about two years now, and there's always a lot more news to get to. So, uh, uh, it's been it's been a week. It, it has been. Open up the show with Velvet Revolver. You may recognize them. They were a super group, uh, part Guns N' Roses, part Stone Temple Pilots. Uh, uh, so Slash and Matt Sorum and Duff McKagan from Guns N' Roses and Scott Weiland, who uh, passed away yesterday, uh, was announced. He was their the lead singer of Velvet Revolver. I had the pleasure of seeing them a few years ago. There was a Virgin Fest, and by Virgin, the uh, the brand, Richard Branson's brand, uh, down in Baltimore. This was maybe in 2006, 2007. Uh, the Police played... That's who I remember the most. Amy Winehouse was there. I want to say the Beastie Boys. It was quite. It was like a two-day festival, music festival, and Velvet Revolver were there. Uh, Modest Mouse were there, whom I did not see. And so, so I thought I would start off the show with some Scott Weiland. We'll be playing some Stone Temple Pilots later. Uh, yep, that's what happens. So there have been, I guess there have been shootings that have been happening for a really long time. And people are talking about it more now just because it's become more, I guess there's just, it seems more regular perhaps, and the media is maybe paying more attention, and there have been more people who have been killed. So I'll be talking a lot about that today. Also, we'll be joined later in the show by Blackberry, who is an amazing musician uh, and activist, and I met Blackberry at the Spectrum Queer Media Open Mic in Oakland, and that's every Tuesday at Perch in Oakland, and that's on uh, Grand Avenue. And it's a great place. And Blackberry is a really talented musician and has lived quite a life so far. So I'm very much looking forward to speaking to him about his adventures and uh, the things that he has seen in his days and what's up ahead. So we'll be getting into the articles as per usual. There'll be a lot of stuff about, I guess, the show Trigger Warning. There should be a trigger warning before the show all the time. I One of my jokes when I do stand-up is that I feel like uh, there should be a, a trigger warning when I walk out the door in the morning because if you actually look in, at the world as it is, uh, things seem really out of place and really backwards and there's so much violence and it's it's become normalized and the systems that are in place only seek to uh, enforce that in a way. And those positions of power, um, not only do they not question it or try to put an end to it, but a lot of them uh, profit off it. And a lot of them have deals with lobbyists and weapons manufacturers who kind of their their main intention is to keep this violence going. And it's not just physical violence. It's a lot of other uh, violence, I feel, is also denying people health care. Uh, violence can be denying people shelter. Violence can be psychological violence and mistreating people and microaggressions. So it's... And it's uh, it's it's normalized in our in our culture, and I recognize that there are certain uh, privileges that one has certainly from living where we where we, where we do live. However, uh, there is also a lot that could be can be made better, and a lot of people do not feel safe. So we need to work on a way to to change that. So some of the stories I'll be reading today will will go into that a little bit. A lot of facts about what's actually going on and then some other ideas about how to go about changing that and some positive moves that have been made to to change the systems that are in place to make them a little bit to make them more just and I think it's funny that we call it the justice system when it definitely does not favor many people and also as per usual I do have a positive news story so while there will be stories that are like oh gosh this is the world we're living in that's sad there will also be a positive news story that's real 
about good things that are happening. And this comes out of Iceland because <laughs> they, they sent a lot of bankers to jail, and that's pretty dope. Uh, of course, I am a prison abolitionist, so I recognize, oh, that feels like a conundrum. Uh, the idea, though, uh, about actually you know punishing people who have hurt others, though, I think is, is the main key and how to overcome those in positions of power who have tricked. That's a very light word to use, but uh, who have tricked and hurt people. Um, if they're punished, I feel a lot, uh, a lot less upset about it than folks who are innocent and have not harmed anyone. And then when they go to jail, I think that's really a problem. So starting out, we have a story from the Washington Post. And this is written by uh, Christopher Ingram. And the title is, There Have Been 334 Days and 351 Mass Shootings So Far This Year. And uh, the story uh, has been updated in light of the San Bernardino shootings, and they also have uh, breaking news about San Bernardino um, on the site as well. So this article came out uh, November 30th. So this is from a few days ago. So, so far, uh, here we go. Uh, Blackberry does a, a great thing uh, before the mic uh, in Oakland, and that's uh, we all take breaths in and out, and we kind of all kind of center ourselves a little bit and preparing ourselves for it. So I recommend folks do the same. Uh, not just for the for this, but just a, it's gen, in general, just remember to breathe. Remember to breathe. All right. The nation was once again stripped, gripped by gun violence on Friday after a gunman identified by authorities as Robert Lewis Deer Jr. stormed a Planned Parenthood clinic in Colorado Springs, killing two civilians and one police officer and injuring nine others. It is just the latest in a year of more than daily mass shootings in America. In fact, there had already been one mass shooting on Friday, and in the early morning hours, two people were killed and two injured in a shooting at a restaurant in Sacramento. Another mass shooting incident in Boston in the early hours of Thanksgiving Day took the life of a Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority rail conductor. There have been at least 351 mass shootings so far this year, according to the news reports collected by a Reddit community that tracks these incidents. The Reddit tracker defines mass shootings as incidents in which four or more people, including the gunmen, are killed or injured by gunfire. The mass shooting tracker is different from other shooting databases in that it uses a broader definition of mass shooting. The old FBI definition focused on four or more people being killed as part of a single shooting. There were at least 12 mass shootings in the U.S. last week so far, counting the Colorado Springs shooting. That shooting would also be the second mass shooting in Colorado Springs this month. And in the article, they have a chart, a chart, a calendar, and uh, of every day of the of the of the year. And there's highlighted if there's zero, one, or two, or three um, shootings, and you can see that. The calendars, is, if you go to the website, the calendars is filled up in December, of course, is, is young. So we'll see what happens with that. Uh, the number of mass shootings so far this year has already surpassed the total number of mass shootings in 2014, according to the tracker. And the pace is well above 2013's pace when a total of 363 mass shootings occurred. So I recommend checking this out. It's posted. It's on the Washington Post as well as the Facebook.com slash Weekly Rev page where we we do post these uh, these articles. So that's definitely something to think about. And something I've, I've brought up as well is also shootings by, by law enforcement. Certainly and there was a shooting in San Francisco in Bayview 
uh, two nights ago, and um, there was video that was that was up. There was children nearby apparently who witnessed it. There were a lot of a lot of witnesses, and Greg Sir, who's the spokesperson for the police, uh, the the constant. Uh, response is that the police were in danger of their lives. However, there were like at least five officers against this one person. They said he had a knife. The officers had guns. And when we just talked about the, the shooting at Planned Parenthood, that, that suspect, that person, the shooter, he was apprehended alive and he shot people, including a cop. And the person in Bayview in San Francisco, um, they'd said the story that they were saying was that he had stabbed someone and uh, he was shot many times and he was he was killed. So when we go into to talking about this, uh, the fact is that this person who shot up a Planned Parenthood was apprehended alive, and this person in San Francisco was killed. So it's I think people need to be really critical when we when we talk about uh, how the police respond to these. There's a lot of people who are defending them, the police, and saying, oh, they were in fear for their lives, and a lot of the demonization of the person who was killed and ideas about who this person was. Um, and he's not here to speak up for himself. He's not here to tell his side of the story because he was murdered. So I think that's just really important to recognize that. So when we talk about gun violence, it's really important to also talk about, <sighs> it's really important to talk about uh, the people who, when we talk about like who has guns and there's a lot of people who law enforcement who have guns who end up murdering people. So that, I think, needs to be included in the conversation as well. And it's a conversation that I think a lot of people are ready to have and some people are hesitant to have, and uh, it's certainly long overdue. So this is going to go into the next. Uh, all of the stories kind of bleed into one another. And of course, you know, we live in a, there's many things happening. I believe in synchronicity and many things happening at the same time. And I do try to find segues into the stories because I do think everything is connected and it's really important to look at patterns. And that's what I... Uh, try to get from this this program is to not just provide news from reliable sources and to get people thinking and having discussions about how to change things and how to you know also to hold myself accountable and hold one another accountable to change the the way that the the world is but then also to find patterns and behavior and really examine this and to see how everything's connected because I, I get that it's we live in a complex world and it's not there are no necessarily easy answers although there are a lot of the Senate there's a lot of people in Congress who are a bunch of assholes I'm just gonna say that right there uh, can't let them get off that easy. So that I feel like is a, is an easy answer, um, but I do recognize that there are a lot of complexities. And when we have so many humans, and everyone has their own ideas about what what one should have, and everyone, you know, who's to say who draws the line? However, a lot of people in positions of authority. This goes all across the map. A lot of them don't know what the hell they're talking about. So I just need to, to state that, and we need to figure out a way to change that immediately. So this next story comes from Mother Jones, and this is written by Allie Gross, and this uh, came, uh, this, is from a, this is from August uh, of 2015, but it goes back into what we're talking about before, and it's California becomes the first state to ban g grand juries in police shooting cases. Uh, the, refusal to, the refusal to indict, as occurred in Ferguson and other communities of color, has fostered an atmosphere of suspicion that threatens to compromise our justice system. Um, and that's, oh, that's the quote from, from Ali uh, Gross. And this, yeah, and this came out um, a little bit more recently. Uh, California this week became the first state to ban the use of secret grand juries when deciding whether 
to indict police officers in cases of deadly force. The bill, signed by Governor Jerry Brown on Tuesday, was a response to the unrest that followed the grand jury decisions in Ferguson, Missouri, and in Staten Island, New York, uh, not to indict officers who killed Michael Brown and Eric Garner. The use of the criminal grand jury process and the refusal to indict, as occurred in Ferguson and other communities of color, has fostered an atmosphere of suspicion that threatens to compromise our justice system. State Senator Holly Mitchell, Democrat from Los Angeles, who authored the bill, said in a statement, the issue of accountability in the criminal justice system, especially when a police shooting takes place, has been at the center of many of the protests that have occurred across the country in the past year. That's partly because the grand jury process is secret and court, rec court records associated with it are sealed. In Ferguson, prosecuting attorney Robert McCullough decided to release the grand jury documents to squelch accusations of bias. The, the Department of Justice ultimately released its own investigation, agreeing with the grand jury's decision not to indict Darren Wilson, the police officer who shot Brown. The grand jury proceedings are kept secret in order to protect witnesses um, who some say wouldn't come forward if the documents were subject to open record. However, critics contend that the secrecy surrounding grand juries only protects the police and does nothing to foster justice. Following the death of Eric Gardner last summer and the grand jury decision not to indict Daniel Pantaleo, the NYPD officer responsible for his death, the New York chapter of the ACLU began an ongoing battle to make public the minutes and records of what transpired in the grand jury. The ACLU's request for the records was rejected by a Staten Island judge in March, and the group's May appeal was again rejected last month. When a grand jury makes a decision about whether or not to indict an officer in the killing of a New Yorker, the public has a right to know why. Donna Lieberman, executive director of the New York Civil, Civil Liberties Union, said in a statement, There is a deep and well-founded suspicion of the criminal justice system, partly because no one has been accountable for the death of Eric Garner, and the community doesn't know why. The group plans to appeal the decision again. The new... California law leaves it up to the prosecutor to decide whether to charge the police officer with using deadly force, a change that many hope will lead to more transparency and accountability. <coughs> Last fall, Bowling Green State University criminologists released research showing that between 2004 and 2011, only 41 police officers were charged with murder or manslaughter for on-duty killings. During that same seven-year period, however, the FBI classified 2,718 police killings as justifiable homicides. It's very rare that an officer gets charged with a homicide offense resulting from their on-duty conduct, even though people are killed on a fairly regular basis. Philip Stinson, an assistant professor of criminal justice at Bowling Green, who received a federal grant to study arrests of police officers, told the Wall Street Journal. In addition to the grand jury bill, Brown signed a measure that ensures the right of civilians to record or photograph the police in public areas. In the past, some civilians who have done so have been arrested or told to stop for obstruction justice. And that, that was happened, that happened to me once as well. I was told to, to stop. Uh, with the stroke of a pen, Governor Brown reinforces our First Amendment right to, uh, but, and ensures transparency, accountability, and justice for all Californians. State Senator Ricardo uh, Lara, uh, Democrat Bell Gardens, the author of the bill, said in a statement, uh, at a time when self, at a time when cell phone and video footage is 
helping steer important national civil rights conversations, passage of the Right to Record Act sets an example for the rest of the nation to follow. So it's really uh, quite important that we remember that this has passed, and perhaps in other states they will also do the same, because um, then cops are going to continue to do what they do if there's if they're not going to be prosecuted or held accountable. So this goes into the next story, which is um, from NPR, uh, answering the tough questions of who polices the police, which is something that I ask all the time, and many people ask. And uh, this uh, is from Martin uh, Cast, and it was updated on December 3rd. When Chicago Mayor Rahm Emanuel fired his police superintendent Tuesday, he acknowledged the problem that's been dogging law enforcement since the days of the fine of the first uh, beat cops. How do we ensure that we are effectively policing the police? Of course, departments have in internal affairs investigators, and some police also answer to civilian oversight boards. But since Ferguson, there's been a growing sense that the real conflict of interest is higher up, at the level of the local prosecutors. For prosecutors and grand juries, the decision to, to charge a cop is different from deciding whether to charge a civilian. There are good legal reasons for this. After all, cops are allowed to shoot people. If circumstances warrant, if circumstances warrant, but there are also subtler differences, says Jonathan Whitmer Rich, an associate professor at Cleveland State University's law school. Prosecutors do not seem to approach police shooting cases the way they approach ordinary shooting cases, he says. Whitmer Rich has been watching the controversial handling of the case of, the case of an officer who shot and killed a 12-year-old uh, Tamir Rice last year. He says prosecutors in cases like this like this one, are in a tough spot. It's very delicate for them politically, he says. They have to work with the police day in and day out. They're facing pressures about alienating people they work with regularly, and that makes it very hard for them politically. Enter the special prosecutor. One idea for solving this is to bring in outsiders. This idea gained traction after the death of Eric Garner in New York City last year, for which no officer was charged. This summer, Governor Andrew Cuomo ordered the creation of a new unit of special prosecutors inside the Attorney General's office. When in doubt, says Alvin Bragg, who heads the unit, district attorneys are supposed to call his crew to the scene of police shootings. <coughs> Bragg cites an example in Suffolk County on Long Island. The initial report was that one person was unarmed, Bragg says, and then when we got there and learned there was a knife, and then reviewed some of the video showing that the person who ultimately died was armed with a knife in the video, so therefore the case fell outside our jurisdiction. Since the special prosecu prosecutors step in only when the dead person was unarmed, they don't step in much. They've taken just one case so far. Still, cops don't like this system. What my concern is, for those officers who shouldn't be indicted, then there'll be uh, political pawns and they will be indicted, said Michael uh, Fal uh, Palladino, head of the NYPD Detectives Union. He says bringing in a special prosecutor also creates political pressures. Uh, there is definitely going to be an expectation that an indictment is going to be returned, he says. Difficulty in investigating peers. The answer may lie with consistency. Bringing in outsiders every time the police kill or seriously injure someone. That's what's done in many Canadian provinces. We receive notice immediately 
and we're the ones who, that roll out and take over the the scene, said Richard Rosenthal, head of a three-year-old uh, entity called the Independent Investigations Office of British Columbia. The police protect the outside of the scene, but we're in charge of the inside of the scene. So we are the actual criminal investigators, but we're not police, he says. That philosophy runs so deep, the agency won't hire recently retired British Columbia police as investigators. Contrast that to the U.S., where police shootings are usually investigated by another law enforcement agency. Rosenthal saw this up close. He's an American, a former prosecutor from Los Angeles, and he says cops have a hard time investigating other cops. It's very, very difficult for you to tell somebody to investigate their peers, he says. And the there-but-for-the-grace-of-God-go-I philosophy permeates through police investigations. It's true that regular prosecutors make the final call on charges, but there is less political pressure because the interrogations, the investigations and reports always come from an independent entity. And Rosenthal says that's something even the police in British Columbia have come to appreciate. So with that, I'm going to play the, some music, then we'll be back with some more, uh, more stories. Thank you. 
welcome back. We have a special guest stopping in for a moment, and that's uh, Diamond Dave, who has returned from uh, his trip to D.C. Uh, D.C., and you may have heard uh, last week uh, when I call, we called in with the Lakota Rainbow Alliance. We were in the Greenbelt. Uh, that's where we camped out. Uh, a beautiful place. I recommend if you ever come to Washington, go to Washington. Don't go to a big uh, fancy hotel. Don't go to a cheap hotel, but come on out and camp, camp out at the Greenbelt. It's right there at the Maryland-Washington line. It's a natural, wild spot and a good place for the Lakota people and rainbow people to get together, which is what we did, and went in front of the White House uh, every day. I was gone for about a week, camped there for about a week, asking uh, uh, President Obama, of course, this is the time in his, uh, as, as his uh, presidential career ends, where he can issue executive, executive pardons and, say, and open the prison door. And we were talking particularly about Leonard Peltier, who's been in there for prison uh, for 40 years, certainly one of the longest uh, political prisoners. What happened uh, 40 years ago certainly didn't 40 years in prison where he's been. His health is declining. And we hope that people will say, hey, President Obama, let, uh, let the man out uh, in his last years. And that's what we were there to do. We were also there to uh, uh, sit around the fire. In fact, one of the things we did was was, was that last week, uh, call in to, to your program, Roman, yep. and pass the phone around. Yes, yes. And uh, I hope it came in clearly. Yeah. Clearly, it was uh, clearly as to what we were about. Uh, Lakota people talking what they're and talking about their prayers. And the whole was definitely greater than some of its parts. Yeah. And I'll be back uh, not this Friday, today. But uh, but next Friday we'll be beginning the new season of uh, the Common Thread Collective. Wonderful, and uh, yeah, folks can come by for the Common Thread Collective. Yeah, it's come on through. Music, it's uh, spoken mic, word, everything. Spoken word, uh, singer-songwriters, acoustic and semi-acoustic units of every sort, and hopefully intelligent conversation about what we're about, what we're about at city, in the city, on the planet and in the street. Wonderful. So it was uh, good to be there right in front of the White House. You can see pictures. If you go to my Facebook page, you can see some pictures of us, Diamond Dave, Facebook page, um, right in front of the White House, looking right out that window uh, and saying, hey, hey, Barack Obama, let this man out of prison. Right on. Right on. Well, thank you. Uh, thanks for, for stopping by. Well, of course. Yeah. Uh, here I am, and it's so good to be here. So good to be back in San Francisco, and it was good to be there as well. Wonderful. Conversations, communications, uh, community, strangers becoming friends, and friends becoming family, and family becoming community, and community on the move, the movement to say, open those prison doors and let the brother out. Right on. Right on. Thanks, Dave. So very cool. So yeah, so uh, the Common Thread Collective happens here at Mutiny Radio uh, Fridays at at three p.m. Following three to six, and before that, we uh, we have the women's. Uh, my co-host Val, Val does the uh, co-host Val and uh, does her show, which is called the Women's Magazine, uh, uh, from two to three the hour before. Right on. And here we are. Cool. Thanks, Dave. Good to see, good to be here on Mutiny Radio. Right on. Thank you so much. So, uh, so we'll be getting back into some uh, stories. Always good to hear from from Dave. And uh, thanks again for calling in uh, last week. So, uh, shifting a little bit here. This uh, December first was World AIDS Day, so I was going to talk a little bit about that. And if folks don't know, there's a great organization that's been around since March of 1987 called ACT UP, and they did quite a few demonstrations. The first one they did in March of 87, 17 people were arrested, and then following year, 100 people were arrested. They did demonstrations 
outside the FDA. They did demonstrations inside St. Pat- Patrick's Cathedral, where many people went in and like they laid down in the in the aisles and were arrested. 111 people were arrested that time, and there are over 4,000 people outside. They also, um, at one point, I think in 1989, went into the uh, New York Stock Exchange and they uh, they uh, locked themselves to I guess to a piece of equipment that was or something that was in the uh, stock exchange and demanded that uh, the price of AZT, which at the time was costing patients $10,000 a year, be lowered. And those actions did uh, make a difference, and they decided to lower the cost of the medication to like $6,400 a year. So they did a lot of great... Uh, really great demonstrations and there's an incredible documentary called United in Anger that I recommend everyone check out and they have a lot of footage from that and a lot of great interviews so I wanted to talk about that and this story uh, is is connected in a way and this comes from Out Magazine and it's Elizabeth Taylor had an illegal underground jug network for AIDS patients so I thought this was fascinating and wanted to, to read this and this came out uh, December 2nd and it was written by uh, Les Ferian uh, Braithwaite uh, actor, legend, humanitarian, and Burton Burton <laughs> Dame Elizabeth Taylor was an early and important advocate in the fight against HIV/AIDS. Uh, she lobbied a cruelly indifferent administration to take action, and when it didn't, she co-founded AMFAR, the Foundation for AIDS Research, and she stood publicly by longtime friend Rock Hudson during his battle with the disease. Uh, but that wasn't all the Dame did. Taylor's protege, supermodel, affordable home goods mogul and AIDS activist Kathy Ireland uh, recently revealed to Entertainment Tonight okay, that Liz ran an illegal safe house for people with AIDS uh, where, where they could receive experimental medication as depicted in uh, Dallas Buyers Club. Uh, talk about Fearless in her home in Bel Air. It was a safe house. A lot of the work that she did, it was illegal, but she was saving lives. It was at a time when it was not something to do. Business associates pleaded with her, leave this thing alone. She received death threats. Friends hung up on, on her when she, was at, when she asked for help. But something that I love about Elizabeth is her courage. Uh, Taylor even hooked, up, uh, hooked some of her famous jewels to fund the operation. As the Reagan administration and the FDA were dragging their feet on finding a cure, these kinds of buyers clubs became essential for people with AIDS to receive unapproved prescription drugs from foreign countries like Mexico, Sweden, and Switzerland, as well as information on treating HIV and opportunistic infections. Uh, and there was Liz Taylor yelling at Congress, uh, making clandestine drops of cash in paper bags and redefining the role of celebrity in the fight against the deadliest epidemic in, the mo- in modern times. All the while, uh, dripping in fur eh, and diamonds. I'm not a fan of either of those. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, when is this being made into a movie? Uh, Okay, so that's that's the article. So uh, I thought that was good to to point out when people, and that can be for any kind of situation, to act illegally when necessary to save lives, especially those in positions of power. You can use your power for good to help those others, others, which is uh, really essential um so standing with the staying with the lgbtq theme uh this uh comes from uh the uh the uh oh the column uh dot mn 
Uh, dozens of Minnesota LGBTQ groups released a statement in solidarity with uh, hashtag Black Lives Matter. And this was updated at 2.45 p.m. And this is from December 3rd, written by Andy Berkey. Um, all right. Uh, we recognize that black people in America, some of whom are LGBTQ, are systematically oppressed. And we stand together affirming that Black Lives Matter. The joint statement read... Uh, as uh, LGBTQ organizations, we acknowledge that while our work is bound up with movements for racial healing and justice, and many members of our organizations and communities have shown up in support of this movement, we historically haven't done enough to align our missions with work for racial justice. With this letter, we want to publicly state our support in a unified way and ask our friends and supporters to step forward with us. The statement notes the protests and disruptions that drew attention to LGBTQ in inequity in the past, including the Compton Cafeteria riots, the Stonewall riots, and the White Knight riots. As LGBTQ people from many races, many religions, and many colors, we know what it is to stand up for our inherent worth, our identities, our bodies, and to speak out against discrimination, harassment, and violence, the joint statement read. Countless times, LGBTQ people and organizations have organized, agitated, and taken action to demand institutional equity and respect for our lives. The letter continued, We are called to stand in solidarity with Black Lives Matter and all struggles to fight racism, to ensure that the killing of black people gets proper investigation, and to call attention to the pervasive culture of white supremacy in the United States, what happened to Jamar Clark, and has been happening across this country to black and brown people for much too long is not justice. This must change. Organizations signing on to the statement are Outfront Minnesota, P Fund Foundation, Reclaim, Faded Productions, Twin Cities People of Color Pride, Family Tree Clinic, Minnesota Transgender Health Coalition, Race Productions, 20% Theater Company, Twin Cities, Shades of Yellow, Rainbow Health Initiative, Gender Justice, GLBT Host Home Program, Avenues for Homeless Youth, Twin Cities Pride, Transforming Families, Minnesota Two-Spirit Society, Minnesota AIDS Project, Bisexual Organizing Project, KFI, KFAI Radio, Transgender Health Services at University of Minnesota Program in Humanity, Sexuality, and Cafe Southside. And they've more organizations have added their names, which are Minnesota LGBTQ Therapist Network, The Column, Gadfly Theater Productions, Embodied Arts, National LGBTQ Task Force, Pangea World Theater, One Voice Mixed Chorus, Madam of the Arts, All God's Children, Metropolitan Community Church, Wedge Tech, Out Now, Stonewall DFI, DFL, uh, Brethren Mennonite Council for LGBT Interests, Augsburg College Queer Pride Alliance, and the column will continue to update this list the more that are added. So uh, it's super important when uh, we support each other and stand up for one another, and that's how we will we will win, and things will change. So get going along with the statements here, here's one from the uh, San Francisco Anti-Displacement Coalition statement against a new jail replacement project. Some idiots in City Hall, and I will call them idiots, uh, they want to build a new jail, even though the jails here are not even filled up, and the ones who are in jail, are most 80% are there uh, because they can't afford bail. So there's really, in this city, and I'm sure in many other cities, a lot of the folks who are in prison, uh, it's it's because of criminalization of the poor, and that's that's who's being targeted, and that's who's being sent to prison. And San Francisco, a city that has a lot of money, uh, and there's a dearth of housing, there seems to be this 
stupid idea that they want to they want to build jails, which is and if you build jails, the idea is then to fill it, and uh, jails don't really help people, as we've discussed before. So, uh, San Francisco Anti-Displacement Coalition statement against new jail replacement project. As communities and organizations charged with fighting for human for housing justice and tenants' rights, we openly join in the demand to oppose the construction of the new jail. Mayor Ed Lee is pushing legislation to accept $80 million in state funding as authorizing at $215 million in financing for the jail's construction. The reported $380 million cost of the jail is expected in total more than half a billion dollars upon completion. This jail is being funded through certificates of participation, which do not require public approval. Additionally, the cost the total cost of the jail doesn't even begin to include the cost of operations that the new jail is promising increases in. The amount of money to be spent on the jail alone is enough to warrant outrage, especially given the cuts and decreased funding for vital mental health services and affordable housing. That's absolutely, uh, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, that in the midst of the city's latest affordable housing crisis, the city is planning to spend $600 million on a new jail is no coincidence. We see gentrification and development as intimately linked with the increased criminalization and incarceration of poor, queer, and trans communities of color that disproportionately face the dual realities of eviction and incarceration. A 2014 MacArthur Foundation study drew strong parallels between the disproportionately high incarceration rates of black men and eviction rates of black women. <coughs> And and notes that both perpetuate <coughs> excuse me cycles of poverty. Uh, as advocates, we know that evictions can be prevented if tenants have access to the right resources. Can't we also commit known resources to ending the cycle of incarceration? Further evidence of the connections between displacement and incarceration abounds. According to the Eviction Defense Collab Collaborative. Uh, 2014 annual report, around 30% of those facing eviction were black and around 60% were people of color. The Coalition on Homelessness found that homeless people make up 25% of the jail population on any given day. Additionally, the jail population is shockingly comprised of 56% black people, while they make up less than 6% of the city's population. 80% of the jail are not currently charged with a crime and are locked up simply because they cannot afford to post bail. The intersections between systematic poverty, housing precarity, and criminalization cannot be any more clear. While the residents struggle and fight to stay in their homes because of rapid gentrification, evictions, and displacement, the city is moving swiftly to build more cages to lock up many of those whose homes are under threat or are already homeless. It's clear where the mayor's priorities lay and where he intends to house poor people and black people in San Francisco. Our fight for housing justice must include fights against criminalization and incarceration. We demand that the mayor and the board of supervisors reject plans to build a new jail and instead fund alternatives, including affordable housing, mental health services, jobs, and education. Signed, San Francisco Anti-Displacement Coalition and specific member organizations of the Anti-Eviction Mapping Project. 
Cause Causa Justa, Just Cause, Deborah Gerson, Eviction Defense Collaborative, Faithful Fools, Gray Panthers, Housing Rights Committee of San Francisco, uh, Manila Town Heritage Foundation, Mission SRO Collaborative, Senior and Disability Action, South of Market Community Action Network, San Francisco Tenants Union, Veterans Equity Center, uh, Bill Soro Housing Program. So I agree with, with all of that. And again, it's uh, the people who are, stand to profit from it. A lot of people stand to profit from locking others up, and the public doesn't really have a say in it, which is really messed up. So... Uh, anything we can do to, to get the word out and start talking about it, I think is very important. All right, my voice is starting to go a little bit, so I'm going to play another song, and then we'll be back with some more news.
And welcome back. Are you ready for some more news? Well, I guess it doesn't matter because we got more news. <sighs> so uh, I promised there would be a positive news story, and I try to have at least one positive one. And I guess it depends on how you look at things, that things can be uh, positive. Uh, so we got some more. Uh, I do have a positive news story uh, coming up here. And this was what I was talking about before, which was uh, coming out of Iceland in which they decided to actually jail their, their, their bankers, which I think is pretty awesome. So there's positive news out there, and perhaps we can, uh, we can learn something from them. So this comes from redicecreations.com. Uh, first, they jailed the bankers, now every Icelander, to get paid in bank sale. And imagine if they did, th did that here in the States. I think that would be pretty great. And this um, also was directed through uh, the anti-media org. Uh, first, Iceland jailed its crooked bankers for their direct involvement in the financial crisis of 2008. Now, every Icelander will receive a payout for the sale of one of its three largest banks, Islands uh, Banki. Uh, if Finance Minister Bjarni Benedikson had his has his way, and he likely will, Icelanders will be paid uh, kroners, uh, thirty thousand kroners. Uh, after the government takes over ownership of the bank. Uh, Islands Banki would be the second of the three largest banks under state proprietorship. I am saying that the government uh, takes some decided portion, 5%, and simply hand it over to the people of the country, of this country, he stated. Because Icelanders took control of their government, they effectively own the banks. Bened uh, Benedictson believes this will bring foreign capital into the country and ultimately fuel the economy, which, incidentally, remains the only European nation to recover fully from the 2008 crisis. Iceland even managed to pay its outstanding debt to the IMF in full in advance of the due date. Gulagur Por... Dorson, and I apologize for my pronunciation, uh, Budget Committee Vice Chairperson explained the move would facilitate the lifting of capital controls, though he wasn't convinced state ownership would be the ideal solution. Former Finance Minister uh, Stegramor J. Sigfusson sided with Porterson, uh, telling a radio show, we shouldn't lose the banks to the hands of fools, and that Iceland would benefit from a shift in focus to separate commercial banking from investment banking. Plans haven't yet firmly been firmly set for which the take for when the takeover and subsequent payments to every person in the country will occur, but Iceland's revolutionary approach to dealing with the international financial meltdown of 2008 certainly deserves every bit of the attention it's garnered. Iceland recently jailed its 26th banker with 74 years of prison time amongst them for causing the financial chaos. Meanwhile, U.S. banking criminals were rewarded for their fraud and market manipulation with an enormous bailout at the taxpayer's expense. Uh, so... When we, we think about uh, what could happen, what ha what's happening elsewhere and what could happen here, I think it would make things a lot easier. I know there's, I think, like like 60, at least 60% of the folks here in the U.S. are in debt. Uh, maybe that's that's not correct. 60% 60 60 of the U.S. population has uh, savings of $1,000 or less in the bank. 
And imagine what would happen if all the money that uh, was kind of taken uh, it would be redistributed among the masses. I think that would be <sighs> a pretty a pretty good thing. So, um, waiting on our guest for so hopefully he will be here shortly. And I wanted to read a little bit from I'm on a I'm on a lot of mailing lists a lot, and uh, this comes from a, a transgender uh, Europe mailing list, and they have a trigger warning in their in their emails uh, when they send them out, and uh, I try to you know, pay as much attention uh, as I can. And then also just, I feel it's my duty to at least share what's, what's happening. Um, cause I have that, that privilege to do so. So this is, uh, uh, goodness gracious. So I'm going to read, um, some snippets, uh, of trans news from around Europe since November. Uh, so from, May 11th, uh, Italy's constitutional court announced that legal gender recognition does not depend on medical treatments. That's great news. That's a good, that's great. We don't need a trigger warning for that. That's awesome. Uh, November 11th, um, uh, LGL uh, uh, started work on the first, or no, it's, okay, so it's Europe. So it's, uh, it's November 5th this happened. I'm reading it. Backwards, okay. So November 5th, uh, Italy's constitutional court announced that legal gender recognition does not depend on medical treatments. On November 11th, LGL started work on the first trans campaign in Lithuania, and it's hashtag TransLT. On November 12th, the Anti-Torture Committee scolded Austria over treatment of trans inmates. Oh, um, also on November 12th, Ukraine included gender identity in labor code. On November 18th, 70 persons attended Transmisha 2, an annual conference by Transakcia in Ljubljana on the topic of transgender activism, advocacy, community, and alliance building. On November 19th, Vicky, a trans woman, was found dead in a male prison in the UK. On November 20th, Organizations around Europe hold events for the Transgender Day of Remembrance, including Trans Aid Croatia, Transform, MIT, uh, Movements uh, Identitia Transsexual. Uh, November 23rd, Nie, a trans woman, was killed in Istanbul. On December 1st, Joanne, a trans woman, was found dead in a male prison in the UK. And on December 3rd, uh, Alev, a trans woman, was killed in Istanbul. <sighs> so, uh, again, this, this news comes from uh, TGEU, and uh, there are, it's, been, it's been an organization that's been around for 10 years. Um, so you can find more information um, on, their, on their website. They also have like, a mailing list. So I think it's just, yeah, very, uh, very important to... Mention what's going on, and of course there are killings here in the in the in the states as well. And I'm gonna read a little uh, passage here. Uh, every year in November, we provide an update of the Trans Murder Monitoring Project, uh, which results uh, the results for the International Transgender Day of Remembrance, so as to assist activists worldwide in raising public awareness of hate crimes against trans people. The TDOR 2015 update has revealed a total of 271 cases of reported killings of trans people from October 1st, 2014 to September 30th, 2015. So that's 271 people. 
This year, uh, we've developed postcards and online images to use for Transgender Day of Remembrance, and they have uh, links on their website. And uh, they also have a statistic. Uh, every 36 hours, a trans person is reported murdered. That's every 36 hours. Um, and we have some more quotes here. Uh, the Grim Numbers and Human Cost of Violence Against Trans People, and that's by Carla Legata and Boglarka Fedorko. Uh, these are all coexisting forms of gender oppression and gender-based violence and undermine what has been achieved in terms of equality in a society. Only if we stand in solidarity can we begin to overcome the violence and hatred against our communities and in our schools. Uh, so uh, there's a publication called uh, For the Record, which documents violence against trans people. And there's also here uh, trans respect versus transphobia, the social experiences of trans and gender diverse people in Colombia, India, the Philippines, Serbia, Thailand, Tonga, Turkey, and Venezuela, which is edited by Karsten Balzer and Carla Legata and Jan Simon Hara. And you can find a link to that on this uh, webpage as well. And again, this is the organization is called TGEU and you can donate to them and support them as well as be on their mailing list. And it's the, the transgender Europe uh, website. Uh, so, <sighs> um, it's just sad and, and disgusting that this is the, the world that we're, we're living in, and I feel the very least one can do is, is speak about what's, what's happening, and, uh, it's, I don't have anything to, to add to that. So I'm going to play some more music, and then uh, we'll be back with some more news.
my name is Luca. I live on the second floor. I live upstairs from you. Yes, I think you've seen me before. If you hear something late at night, some kind of troublesome kind of fight, just don't ask me what it was. Just don't. And welcome back. That's an upper from Suzanne Vega, Luca. Uh, I did that once at karaoke. It was a huge cla- uh, crowd pleaser. Uh, just kidding. I enjoyed it, though. I think it's a great song. So one can sign petitions. It's something to do. And uh, one credo has is uh, tell President Obama now it's time to take a stand against Islamophobia. And that's been... Uh, on the rise, of course, um, in France, I know definitely, and here in the States as well. So if you go to Credo, uh, you can sign a petition, uh, tell President Obama, take a stand against Islamophobia in the aftermath of the San Bernardino shootings, denounce the rising tide of anti-Muslim violence by speaking out and making a public visit to an American mosque. So you can go ahead and do that. And uh, I'll read what they say. Uh, The horrific violence this week in San Bernardino where 14 people were killed, and 21 were wounded, is difficult to comprehend. We stand with the victims and their families, with two Muslims identified as the reported uh, perpetrators of Wednesday's attack. We also stand with the people most likely to become victims of backlash and violence over the coming weeks, American Muslims. Right-wing extremists in the political and media establishment, including prominent Republican leaders, have already seized on racism and incendiary rhetoric, inciting hate crimes against innocent Muslims. Instead of taking up any reasonable proposal to protect our communities from senseless gun violence, congressional Republicans have been too busy working on xenophobic legislation that feeds into the very ideologies that often underlie such heinous acts of violence. But what we need most in this moment is for our leaders, especially our president, to stand up for all Americans. Six days after the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush visited a mosque and spoke out against the harassment of Arabs and Muslims in the U.S. It was a symbolic act, but an important one. But President Obama has yet to visit a mosque in the United States. Doing so would go a long way to both denounce the hateful rhetoric that leads to violence and discrimination while striking at the heart of a small group of extremists who would wield a twisted interpretation of Islam as a tool for violence. Uh, It's help President Obama take a stand, and they have a link here. Uh, Progressive champion Representative Keith Ellison has already urged his congressional colleagues to show solidarity with their local Muslim community by visiting a mosque. Uh, tell uh, President Obama should re- answer Rep. Ellison's call. 
In his statement after the San Bernardino shooting, President Obama went out of his way to speak out against gun violence and hold Congress accountable for their inaction. But he said nothing to the stern to, to stem the predictable anti-Muslim xenophobia sure to follow. Right-wing extremists were quick to launch into blanket rhetoric targeting the Muslim community following the shooting massacre in San Bernardino. With the facts still unclear and before there was a shred of evidence to back it up, Senator Ted Cruz, who I'm just going to fucking say is a fucking asshole, uh, has already declared the shootings yet another manifestation of terrorism, radical Islamic terrorism here at home, and insisted that we are all... We are in a time of war. The New York Post, which is terrible, uh, plastered the headline, Muslim Killers, on its front page. Given rhetoric like this, it's no wonder that since the terror attacks in Paris several weeks ago, Muslims in America have been increasingly under siege. A Muslim taxi driver was shot in the back by a passenger who questioned his nationality and began ranting about ISIS. Uh, Cable news has aired messages deeming Muslims unusually violent, calling for death squads to wipe them out and labeling Islam a destructive force. Numerous other Muslim men and women have been asked to leave flights, including one case where one was accused of acting suspiciously for watching the news on his phone. Uh, Armed protesters surrounding a mosque in Texas carrying automatic weapons then posted the home addresses of those who worship there. Uh, other mosques have faced threats, vandalism, fake bombs, and attacks from the community. Republican presidential candidate and asshole Donald Trump has called for a registry of American Muslims and other candidates have compared them to quote-unquote rabid dogs, among other hateful remarks. 26 Republican governors have vowed without any legal authority to block Syrian refugees from their states. In the face of such a climate of fear, public rejections of Islamophobia by prominent national elected leaders, including visits to mosques, would send a powerful message that America is a nation where all are welcome and violent hatred is not welcome. Uh, Whatever the heinous motivations of Wednesday's mass shootings were, we as a society must not cave to hate, fear, and blanket Islamophobia. To do so, we only perpetuate the cycle of hate and violence from which such acts arise. We reject the politics of hate and fear and condemn those who peddle or cave to it. We reject any attempts to demonize Muslim, Arab, or South Asian communities, and we reject any efforts to use tragedies to justify deportations, ramp up militarization in the Middle East, suspend civil rights, or close our borders. Credo members have spoken out against Islamophobia, called on Senate Democrats to reject efforts to demonize Muslims, denounced Trump and Ben Carson's hateful rhetoric, and the actions of governors who reject refugees. Now we need to show our leaders how they can begin to turn the tide, starting with the powerful symbolic actions of denouncing Islamophobia and visiting an American mosque. Uh, Tell President Obama, take a stand against Islamophobia, denounce anti-Muslim harassment and violence, and visit a mosque in your community to show solidarity with American Muslims. They have a link to the petition. You can find that at credoaction.com. Thank you for speaking out. So again, this kind of goes into a lot of the other stories and how uh, everything is connected and how people in positions of power have a lot, uh, they have a lot of sway and they can, uh, people, a lot of people tend to need to be told what to do and what to think. And uh, I think that's a huge problem. However, if folks in positions of power can act uh, civilly, uh, that will at least uh, negate the actions of those in power who are telling or trying to stir up that fear and trying to stir up the hatred amongst, uh, amongst people.
Oh, so just wanted to 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 get that out out there. And I'm also going to uh, read here a uh, a a little message from a left forum. And uh, on December 9th, which uh, is happening next week, all right, that's great. There's a uh, there's going to be a monthly economic update on global capitalism, and it's by Richard D. Wolf, uh, saving capitalism from itself or saving us from it. And this will be uh, this is in New York at the uh, Judson Memorial Church Assembly Hall, 239 Thompson Street at Washington Square in Manhattan. And uh, the programs begin with 30 minutes of short updates on important economic events on the last month of the last month. And Wolf analyzes several major economic issues uh, for December 9th. Oh, yes, this is another thing I was going to get to. I haven't gotten this article up yet. Uh, they've been arresting a lot of climate uh, activists, uh, climate change activists, you know, folks who are trying to protect the earth. They're being arrested in France and around the world. People who are trying to protect the land they're being arrested. That's my summary of these articles I've read, and that's disgusting, and just to make folks aware that this is what's happening. Okay, so going back to this event that's happening next Wednesday in New York, uh, one, Paris Climate Conference, Big Words, Little Action. Number two, Beyond Saving Capitalism, Beyond uh, Reich and Krugman. Uh, Three, Destroying Higher Education, Betraying Equal Chances for All. Four, The Economy in 2015, A Look Back at the Big Changes. And when time permits, they open the floor to questions and comments. The goal is to develop participants' understanding and the ability to explain current economic events and trends to others. It's a uh, ten dollars to to get in, um, and it's run by Democracy at Work. And if you access these uh, the videos of these monthly updates posted on YouTube and their websites at democracyatwork.info, and uh, they also ask for for contributions there as well. And this is from the Left Forum. Okay, so moving along, uh, finding some other stories to read. Um, hopefully our guest will be here very shortly. I'm very much looking forward to having uh, BlackBerry with us here in the studio. Uh, the Senate, I'm not even going to get into that. They're just a bunch of dicks. That's that's all i got to say about that right now. Uh, there's another, uh, I recommend, Reader Supported News, which is uh, another organization where it has more, uh, it's, is what it says, it's independent news source, and I... I do find I, I get my information from other activists and from folks I can trust and I think it's super it's very important for folks to do that when you find information to just to, to seek it out and to question it and question authority there's another article I'm having difficulty pulling up about how in the DSM the next DSM they're making uh, I don't know if it's a, a story that's meant to, to scare folks oh here we go awesome uh, nonconformity and questioning authority nonconformity and questioning authority are now considered mental illnesses which is beyond fucked up and this comes from uh, counter current news and this is uh, December 3rd okay uh, do you believe that non that uh, nonconformity and free thinking are mental illnesses well according to the most recent edition of the DSM uh, the DSM uh, they are uh, the MDSM stands for diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders all right and of course in the past they said that like being gay was a disorder they say being trans is a disorder like a lot of things that are not disorders they say are disorders so fuck them and the ground grand scheme of things okay the popular psychological manual is considered the quote-unquote bible uh, take an issue with that right there of the psychiatric and what that says psychiatric and psychological profession the new fifth edition of the DSM identifies a mental illness that it terms oppositional defiant disorder or ODD 
On the surface, this might sound legitimate, but when we look at how the DSM defines it, a number of serious problems arise for free, think for free thinkers. The DSM defines ODD excuse me, as an ongoing pattern of disobedient, hostile, and defiant behavior. Its symptoms include questioning authority as well as, vague as well as the vague description of negativity and equally vague defiance and argumentativeness or even being easily annoyed, which I think most of us fall into that category at one point or another. Uh, let's take a look at that for a moment. The DSM has defined oppositional defiant disorder as being defiant, but there is not need to listen to but there's not need to listen to me that's just my argumentativeness to point out that the ODD is defining itself with circular reasoning and argumentation if you have a problem with that it might be because you are easily annoyed with each new edition of the DSM there are uh, they they there are a plethora of new disorders the authors of the Psychological Bible say that this is only because they are, with each edition, able to better identify such illnesses. In just 50 years, the DSM has increased disorders from 130 to 357 mental illnesses. I will say that again. In, the, in just 50 years, the DSM has increased disorders from 130 to 357 mental illnesses. Many of those illnesses target children who have too much energy, creativity, or who ask too many questions. That sounds like a lot of kids. A lot of kids do that. A lot of adults do that. Uh, the Washington Post article even noted that technically, if Mozart were a youth today, he would almost certainly be diagnosed with ADD and medicated into barren normality. Uh, commenting on the manual's new definition, off-the-grid news, <coughs> excuse me, uh, rightly notes that although the authors of the manual claim no ulterior motives but simply better diagnostic practices, the labeling of free thinking and nonconformity as mental illnesses has a lot of potential for abuse. Uh, this it can re it can easily become a weapon in the arsenal of a repressive state, and I would agree with that. And this idea that anyone who questions anything uh, is targeted it's a real it's a real big problem. So, still waiting on our guest. I'm going to play some music, and hopefully he will be here shortly. So, playing a song we played uh, last week, and that's from, uh, uh, or two weeks ago, and that's from uh, Ted Leo and the Pharmacists. Like a great bird in a blue sky over a blue ocean, civilized men fly! Bar, Fluffy clouds and beautiful rainbows with the power and the speed and the will to succeed. Bar, men fly. Bar, no need to clump around through the ash, the rubble, and the mud. No need for face to face, or even worse, to put a perfectly spit shot on a brand new leather boots on the dirty, dusty ground. Oh, sure, you could mobilize a million troops, although a thousand could probably get the job done. But then, people start to ask questions. So when you drop in out of the white clouds in a blue sky, don't worry about them having to see the whites of your blue eyes. Just let that payload fly and wing on home, my son. It's not your way to die. And when the crying starts, you won't have to see the bloodshed eyes turn red. You won't have to know a thing about who 
You're gonna fly! 
we've got here is failure to communicate. Some men you just can't reach. So you can get what we had here last week, which is the way he wants it. Well, he gets I don't like it. Yeah. 
So BlackBerry cannot uh, join us in person. However, uh, he will be calling in shortly, so we'll be able to get him on the on the line, which will be nice. Um, sad we're not going to have him in person. He's a great musician. We're hoping to hear some of his music. Uh, so we'll get the next best thing. Uh, we'll get him to, to call in and talk a little bit about his life. <sighs> so, yeah, uh, kind of frustrating to, to not, not have him here, but we'll be able to hear from him, which is good. So, yeah, uh, I don't have much to add to the, the news other than what I've said so far. Uh, it feels frustrating. Just the, the news in general is frustrating. And uh, it's every week I find that uh, it's the recurring themes are folks in positions of power. And just the, the Senate was uh, they, they turned down to uh, two bills that would have prevented, uh, you know, would have made gun restrictions possible. And they they refused that, so that's messed up. So anyway, here we have uh, BlackBerry on the line. Uh, hello. Uh, let's see. All right. All right. Yeah, we have you here, BlackBerry. Okay. So uh, tell us a little bit about your life. Crazy since I had my fell and cracked my vertebrae, but um, it's I've had uh, uh, a good life though. So. <laughs> uh, I started uh, singing when I was like really young, around maybe three or four, um, and. Uh, got serious about it when I was in my later teens, mm-hmm. um, and sang into adulthood, and, and I started, actually started writing when I was in my teens, too, I started somewhere, so, and that's kind of been my thing all my life. Yeah. Were you brought up in a musical family? No, not really. Nobody in my family did music. Um, my grandfather 
um, played harmonica, but he didn't play it, you know. Um, I never, well, he never, he never, I never knew it until I, I bought a harmonica. Mm-hmm. And um, he played a song, and he showed me how to play that song. And um, after that, I started everything. I, 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 would, I had a really good ear, so I would hear things. And whatever I heard, I could play. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I don't play harmonica today, but I, I still know how to play it. Yeah. So, so where did you grow up? I grew up in Baltimore, really. I was born in Buffalo. Mm-hmm. And I lived there till I was seven. And then we moved from my... I was living with my grandfather. And we moved in with my... Who was, who was separated from my grandmother. So we moved in with my grandmother when I was seven. In Baltimore, I left Buffalo to move to Baltimore. And Baltimore is where I grew up. Okay. So, and your, uh, um, do you want to talk a little bit about your your young adulthood? Or I guess it's it's a pretty much a free form conversation. So, if there's anything, uh, any memories you want to discuss, or any important events in your uh, life that well, you want to recall? I, well, I knew I was gay from really, really little. Yeah. Um. And uh, by the time I started school, I'm, um, yeah, when I, in Buffalo, uh, there was somebody who lived down the block from me who I used to have liaisons with. And um, kind of, you know, I met people when I was in school, and so I, I didn't have uh, that, that isolation that uh, I didn't know any other gay people because I knew yeah. lots of gay people when I was coming up. And um, my mother caught me with one of my schoolmates when I was about 14, mm-hmm. and after our conversation about it, she had, she had known anyway. She yeah. Said, she said, uh, that, she says, well, I know, I knew all the time because girls never called the house. Yeah. Never the house. Yeah. So, and she was okay, okay about it. And so that kind of liberated me. Yeah. It's great since a lot of, people didn't have a like around what around what like era was this like around what year um well let's see it was in the 50s actually oh wow yeah oh. yeah so but you, you've seen a lot I, of I, changes. yeah i was really fortunate because i know people have a lot of horror stories about growing up sure um but to me it was totally different very accepted, um, very supportive. She supported me all, all my life. Whatever, whatever. She, you know, I was always able to make my own choices about what I wanted to do, and and she supported it whether she agreed with it or not. 
but that's great. She was, she was really, she was really okay with my being gay. There was other, other things like when I, when as I got older, I, uh, when I, my first, when I started smoking pot. Yeah. <laughs> she, she didn't do it. She didn't agree with it, but she supported me. I could smoke. I could smoke in my house. I didn't have to go somewhere else. So. Always, always been supportive. Wonderful. And, do, um, any... and when I, when I, uh, when I started um, performing as an out musician, she and one of her coworkers came to a concert that I did in D.C. Because I was in D.C. Um, performing, and uh, she wrote me this this letter that said. She knew that I did music, but she never knew um, how my music affected other people. Yeah. And she saw how my audience was with me, and she was she was really proud. She, mm. said she was really proud. And her friend, one of her friends, told me uh, after the concert said, oh, "Don't be surprised if they never invite you to the White House." <laughs> <laughs> That's a compliment. <laughs> it was a compliment. Yes. At, at that time. Yeah. So, have your songs always had like more of like a political like bent to them? Yeah, they 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 had. Well, earlier when I when I started earlier, I was doing um, gospel because I was in the church, and I was actually writing uh, gospel songs. Um, and uh, when I when I uh, when I started playing guitar, well, even before that, when I I I, I was writing poetry and and singing, and uh, when I first started writing political songs, somebody told me that I needed to choose between politics or or uh, regular commercial music. Mm-hmm. That the two didn't match, mm. so I couldn't do both of them. And and so, what was your response to that? Oh, shoot. Um, okay, we hold on. We uh, we lost BlackBerry, so uh, hopefully he will he will call back and and talk more about uh, his experience. Interesting to thinking about this idea that songs can't be they have to be either political or popular and that they can't be both i think that's uh you know when you then of course like in the, in the 60s certainly and then even like later on even if like the 90s with rage against the machine there are songs that of course can be political and popular and it'd be nice if that were to 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 come back certainly to to hear it come back of more in the 60s like a lot of songs were, were definitely political and i think we we missed that quite a bit. So hopefully, uh, Blackbird will be will be uh, calling back. And here we go. All right. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. Call got dropped. We got cut off. Yes. Yes. So we were talking about um, songs being either political or popular, and oh, I was curious yeah. what your response um, was to that. I I decided that I was gonna do out actually 
the first person that encouraged me to be to come out publicly um, with poetry and my and, and my music in general, who I met many years ago. And um, he came to speak at this co- this college, Hunter's College. Oh yeah, in New York. And, uh, and then later he came to uh, the place where I was staying. And I just was inspired by him mm-hmm. to do poetry and So I decided to perform as an out musician, and that was that was enough. But I always uh, wanted to do things my way. Right. Right. I, I chose it because nobody else was doing it, and I, and I wasn't afraid. I didn't have that fear because I didn't I, because I had support growing up, and I wasn't I wasn't really ashamed of being gay. So I and then politics my politics crossed a lot of different uh, lines. Uh, wasn't just wasn't just my out being out as a as a as a, a black gay musician, but also um, I was just you know there was the civil rights movement, there was there was the women's movement, there was there's just so much going on. Yes. There was the war, the anti-war movement. There was the environmental movement. I you know and uh, my music. About all those things, really. Mm-hmm. It covers it, it, everything. And, uh, that's life affirming. And, um, I just, and it's been, for me, it's been a, it's been a, it's been a good choice. Uh, I, I, and all those things that people said would never happen to me. Some of them didn't happen. And you've you've traveled quite a bit, so I was hoping you could talk a little bit about places it's that you've there. performed. Yes, yes, you've traveled a bit, so I was hoping you could talk about places that you've been. Hello. Are you talking? I can't hear. You. Uh, yes, yes. I was, I was saying. I was hoping you could talk a little bit about uh, places that you've traveled when you've performed. Sorry, your you, your voice is really sounds like you're far away. But would you repeat that question, please? I was hoping you could talk about places that you've traveled uh, when you've performed. Oh, okay. Um, I've been a lot of places. Mm-hmm. The first time I performed out of the country was 
Nicaragua. I went with a delegation of uh, artists and musicians to the, I think it was like the third anniversary of the revolution in Nicaragua. And then when I came back from Nicaragua, I did my, I went to, I kind of went to Scandinavia, mm -hmm. Sweden and Denmark. And then I went, and then I came back to the United States, and I went to Mexico, but I didn't perform there, but I, I had an album that some people who were active in Mexico were playing. There, but I didn't perform, but I, I went there. Mm -hmm. um, and then I came back, and I went back to Europe. Mm -hmm. this, the second trip to Europe, I went to London, Portugal, Spain, uh, Amsterdam, then back to Denmark again. Denmark was kind of like a, my base musically. Uh, I was there's a community there of kind of just embraced me. So um, I was I'd been on Danish radio and television, and there was articles written about me in Denmark. And then I was introduced to Takua. And um, I started performing in Kuba as, as when I went, when I would go to Kuba, if I wanted to do that, I would perform um, This last trip, which is about a month ago, I really didn't do any of it there. Basically because I didn't have time, but I played it to perform at the College of Jazz and Science Jazz. That's on my next trip, that's going to happen. But I, I had performed there once about oh, 10 years ago, so it'll be interesting going back. So have you been able to pretty much just make a living as a as an artist then? Earlier in my career, I was pretty much able to, to support myself musically. Um, I would tour like twice a year. I would tour in the spring and in the autumn, and in the, the winter because I lived in California. In mm -hmm. the winter, I basically stay with the one I didn't know when I didn't know. Um, and um, yeah, so I would I would tour the through the southern part of the United States and up up to, up to the East Coast. And there was a couple of places that I played in the mid in the Midwest. It was Chicago and 
was crazy to play in Milwaukee one time, but uh, the people there found out that I was black and used to make space for not letting me have um, Chicago and um, Madison, Wisconsin, those were the places. to my my touring my musical thing um, I lost a lot of folks yes HIV um, people who were booking me when I was on the road I lost them places where I, people who I would stay with when I was traveling on the road I lost those folks um, it was pretty devastating. It, it actually kind of devastated my career. So I started doing HIV education um, because I I lost so many people. I didn't want to see anybody else kind of succumb to this. So I took time off to that work. Mm -hmm. And uh, I went from education to counseling and uh, from that into research. So uh, I retired from research uh, 10 years ago, maybe. No, no, about six years, I'd say. About six years ago, I was back. And now I'm back to doing my music again. Yeah. I haven't toured in, the, in that time, but I had performed in, in Cuba. And I performed in various places in the Bay Area and in Tucson, where I actually started my career as a guitar player. On my first guitar I found in a, in a dump, garbage dump in, in Tucson. That's where, and I taught myself how to play it. Oh. Wow. Well, I'd like to, to talk more, but unfortunately we're, we're just about out of time here. Um, but so if folks want to see you, we, we, people can come to the, the Spectrum Queer Media mic, which happens every Tuesday at, at Perch Coffee House in Oakland. Yeah, and, and also, I also have music on, on bandwidth. It, uh, there's a band, there's an album, the album, my album, my first solo album, my, my first album was actually collectively with uh, some other people. It was called Walls to Roses, Songs of Changing Men. And that was the album that went into the Smithsonian. Oh, wonderful. Um, but the one that I produced with, with the help of uh, friends was called Blackberry and Friends Finally. That one can be can be found on bandwidth. Oh, great! Well, I will. I'll get that and have to play that uh, next week. Cool. Awesome, folks. Well, thanks again so much for calling in, Blackberry. Well, thank thank you for inviting me. Yes. Really. And take care and. Some love to everybody out there in Radio Land. Yes. 
Yes, and I'll, I'll see you soon. Okay. Alright, take care. Ciao. Alright, bye. Alright. Wanted to thank Blackberry again for, for calling in, and I'm um, sorry we didn't, weren't able to have him in, in person. He's a really uh, a great musician, and his music's great. I've played it a little bit before on the show in the, in the past, and we'll have to do some more in the future. So that's been it. It's been a it's been a heavy week. It always been a heavy week when one actually looks at the news and what's going on, not just locally but uh, nationally and internationally. And uh, let's hope for more peaceful times. And uh, oh, uh, I wish I had some you know optimistic words to to end on, but you know we don't. Uh, sometimes that's that's just not the case. So. Uh, I think Women's Magazine is off again this week, um, but then Val will be back in next week. So stay tuned to Meet Me Radio. There's plenty of shows here. Uh, shows, 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 shows. Check out meetmeradio.fm for the list of podcasts. And a lot of us are going to be up on iTunes very shortly, if you're not already, so you can check us out there. Uh, I am Roman, and I'll be playing, playing us out with some music. And uh, stay tuned, and have a hopefully a very peaceful week, everyone. Bonito.